Good morning, everyone. So good to see you. I've missed you. I missed last week, and then with summer, you know, we're kind of in and out of the city, and hopefully you've been having some great adventures, but each Sunday kind of feels like a mini reunion. Get to see friends who've been out of town, or uh, even even some new uh, friends coming in. So whether you're new or old, welcome. It's great to see you. Anyone having any particular good summer adventures? Nathan, are you having anything good? Can you give us an example? Bike packing? Cool. That's great. Anyone else have a good adventure? Yep. Nice. I like how you put that, pulled off a couple concerts. That's great. It sounds good. Anyone else have a good adventure? Backpacking. Backpacking. Hopefully some relaxing. Yeah. So hopefully your summer is going well. I'm not going to mention how many, how many weeks left we got. There's still, still lots. Still lots. Um, through the spring and summer, if you've been around, you know we've been slowly making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. Uh, We don't know for sure. Some think this was one long sermon. Uh, Others think it is a collection of his teaching, kind of like a greatest hits album. We don't know for sure, but uh, uh, if you've been around, you know that there's, oh, there's a lot here. There's a lot to chew on. There's stuff that uh, is both comforting and disturbing all in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to keep plowing through. We've got two more Sundays to to finish off the sermon. And let's pick up together in verse 13, chapter 7. If you've got a Bible around you on on an app or on the chair, let's let's go there and read together. We're going to be in verses 13 to 23. Matthew 7, verse 13 to 23, page 679. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And like always, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a tough text. It's a hard text. And we're going we're gonna to get into it this morning, um, particularly the first bit. But this is, this is hard Stuff. This is not easily digestible. Uh, I, th- I remembered a quote from Tim Keller that I, I think is a good reminder. 
If your God never disagrees with you, you may be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. It's good to encounter stuff in the scripture that makes you feel uncomfortable or that you disagree with or that you go, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, Because if that wasn't the case, then probably what's coming at you is just your own layering on top of the text. So here we are, a, a tough text. We're at the end of the sermon here, chapter seven, we're almost done. And it's becoming clear, kind of disturbingly, that Jesus is actually serious about all this stuff that he's been teaching. He's serious that this is a new way to be human. And he apparently isn't looking for admirers or listeners or fans or theologians, but practitioners. That's what he's after, practitioners. The assumption for Jesus' program for this new way to be human in the Sermon on the Mount, or or the curriculum that he's outlining here, the assumption is that people will want to become his students or his apprentices. That's the assumption. It's not just about believing stuff, but practicing stuff. I remember when I was 18, I was driving in my friend Ben Bjorgi, which is a great Norwegian name, Ben Bjorgi's Maroon Tempo, um, just a little bit of detail you didn't need. And uh, we're driving in his tempo, and he had a Bible on his dash, which was unusual because neither of us were Bible readers. And I, I remember him, uh, again, because this was so unusual for us, but him opening to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, stuff we've looked at. And he read the Beatitudes, and he says, oh, isn't that just beautiful? And, and he says, I prefer it in the King James. It's even more beautiful. And that stuck out to me uh, because I thought, huh, I wonder if that's what Jesus was after, like that we'd admire the literary form of his words, like great poetry, Jesus, you killed it on those Beatitudes, really great writing. Uh, It's weird to come to a thing and not understand its telos or its intention or its purpose. It would be weird to spend years studying coding. And you've got books and you've got courses and you, look, you get to know as much as Nigel does. I don't know if you know a lot, but you know more than me, so I'm very impressed by you, Nigel. Um, you, you know a ton about coding and, and then somebody at a party just absolutely throws you an unintentional grenade by saying, so what websites have you built? And you say, none. Well, that's weird. So coding's a hobby? I just, yeah, I love it. But coding is to create something. I know. Or, or you've got a friend who loves bicycles and loves, you know, the gear and the, and, and the lycra. <laughs> they love all that stuff. And then somebody asks them the question, so what rides have you done lately? And they go, actually, I've never learned how to balance. I fell when I was a kid, and so I deeply distrust putting my full weight on something. Oh, okay, but the point of a bike is to move a person. I know, I know, I believe, I believe that. I deeply believe in bicycles. You say, no, something's broken here. I think the intention is not just to believe in your bike, but to ride the thing, and I think that's where Jesus is coming. By the end of the sermon, he's like, look, I'm I'm wanting you to learn how to put your full weight on this, to practice this stuff, to live into it. 
I'm serious. This is a new way to be human. A couple weeks ago, we talked about expert delusion, which I think is something we need to be aware of, this, this idea that since so much of our information and learning comes to us from disembodied means, like social media and online articles, sociologists are calling this a new personality disorder, expert delusion. And it's a self-perception uh, that I know things that I'm not actually living. I'm an absolute expert because you would not believe how much Huffington Post I can put down in a week. You know, that's expert delusion. Just because I've read it doesn't mean I know it or I live it. Or, and I'm always finding an opportunity to share this quote, the other day I was thinking of teaching underprivileged children how to read and just thinking about it was the most rewarding experience <laughs> I've ever had. It's the only time I usually put a picture up with the quote. I have, you got to do it. Um, this expert delusion. Or, as James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. That's really interesting. You can deceive yourself by reading the Bible too much. Don't merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So this is the challenge to ride the bike, to code the website, to practice the way of Jesus. And this is what stuck out, stood out to me uh, last weekend going to Amy's grandpa's funeral, Neil Kloss, and here's a picture of him. There's Cornelius. A lot of people naming their children old names. Don't see a lot of Corneliuses out there. But um, Neil's story came out as this is what happens at funerals, isn't it? We rehearse the story. We retell their lives. And what was so fascinating as we told and in the weeks leading up to the funeral and at the funeral itself and in the side conversations in the foyer were stories that, that carried a particular theme, and that was a theme of generosity. Uh, so Neil moved to the Matsqui Flats in Abbotsford, rode out on a boxcar with his family's Model A, two horses and two cows from Tofield, Alberta. And that's how he got out here. He discovered a woman named Rita Weens and asked Rita to go on a date. And on the first date, he asked her to marry him. So this, this was a man who, he, he was decisive. Uh, and uh, they started a family in Abbotsford, very, uh, very little means, not a lot of money. Five kids, small house. Neil's trying to find work, ends up driving sawdust. Uh, picking up loads of sawdust from the different mills. And uh, that's what he'd do during the week. In the weekends, he was trying to help get a church started. This was before church planting was even called that. And so him and Rita, early on Sunday mornings, would, uh, would get up early, and they'd drive all around Dudney and area, picking up kids to take them to church, to Sunday school, because he wanted kids to discover the love of God. 
And so that's how he spent his morning. One of the pastors at the funeral says, this is not the normal activity of a 20-year-old. Like their weekend excursion drive. And Grandpa, he would joke about it. He's like, there's no seatbelts in the day, so you could cram a lot of them in there. <laughs> so he's got, who knows, 20 kids in his car. Uh, and, he's, and that's what he did. And when, when this church got a pastor, because Neil had been filling in, Neil drove the pastor. And the, the, the pastor who came was the one doing Neil's funeral. So he tells the story. We drove around. And Neil told me, everybody's house, that's this so-and-so, and that's this family, this is their story. This is how he'd spent his weekends, just investing in a bunch of people out in Dudney. There's a woman who shared a story through tears as uh, a memory of being a young girl. And she remembers sitting down at the dinner table and seeing a valley carrier, that was the, that was the company, a valley carrier truck kicking up sawdust down their gravel road coming to their house. And she remembers her dad going to the door, and Neil giving him a fistful of cash because earlier that day when Neil had met him down at the mill, her dad had shared, we're not doing well. Our family's really struggling financially. And so Neil gave his day's pay. He just finished his day, drove it over, and handed it to the guy. Here's the thing. There's hundreds of stories like this of him just like covertly, didn't want any attention, just driving around handing fistfuls of cash to people. Late stories when he's all the way to, to being like a senior, going out for coffee with someone, and they're, they're leaving on a mission trip to Ukraine. And Neil says, I just cashed my pension check. I don't need it. Could you give it to someone in, in the Ukraine? And so we all just, as we listened to this, we were savoring and I guess seeing a life that was unusual different way about it. It had the scent of generosity. And as we were talking on the way home with our kids, we shared, the thing is, Opa was doing this when he didn't have money. He had money later in life. Uh, but he's doing this early. Giving, giving, giving. This was his mission. He told us every May long weekend, we had 36 May long weekends with Opa that he paid for, for the whole family to go. He says, we work hard, so we can give it to the church. That was his mission, to make money, to generate income, and to support people and give it away and find ways to be generous. This, this, is, this was what he got a kick out of. And, and I said to the kids, I was like, yeah, it's almost like he was entrusted, like he was trustworthy with a little bit, and then he could be entrusted with more. And God just kept giving him more because he was like, oh, this guy's a conduit. It's just going to keep flowing. And one of the kids said, uh, I hope that I can learn to take risks and trust the Lord like Opa did. I said, yeah, me too. And that was my thought during the funeral. I thought, w- reading his life, I thought, I think it might actually be better to give than to receive. I think that's true. It's a conversion in me as I'm hearing Neil's story. And so I'm so thankful that Neil wasn't just a hearer, but a doer. That he learned to put the full weight of his life on the reality that God is generous and can provide, and therefore I can be generous too. And if anything that comes through Neil's story, it's this. How you live is what you really believe. He wasn't a man of words. He didn't want to get up front. Um, He liked being behind the scenes. How you live is what you really believe. Everything else is just talk. And this is, I think, Jesus' point. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives three images. 
And they're this. Next slide. Image one is of gates and paths. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's the, the gates and the paths bit. The next part is this kind of mashup of sheep and wolves' clothing, and then, and then it pivots to about fruit. And then the third image, which we didn't get to but will in the coming weeks, is one about storms and houses and the kind of foundation that you have. So if you think of all that Jesus has covered in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at since April, April, May, June, July, August, all the kinds of things that we've seen, stuff like the surprising kinds of people God blesses and clothing and divorce and worry and prayer and telling the truth and forgiveness and murder and nonviolence and salt and light and fasting and giving to the needy and treasures and what you do with your money and what goes on in your heart about that stuff and how you use words and judging people and lust and asking and seeking and knocking. And as we've seen, there's way more here than we can excavate, we can get to the bottom of. But every dimension of life is covered here. Everything's covered here. And then it ends with these three images. Ends with these three images. So what's going on? Is there any kind of inner coherence here? That first image of gate and paths, this is uh, an image of a, a warning. A warnings, you could say, of the world. Beware of the forces in the wider culture that can sweep you up without noticing. He says, see the dangers of going with the flow. It's the first image. The second image is a warning about the church. Beware of false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. They only look out for their own interests. And he says, it's by the fruit. It's, it's by the long-term game of a leader's character that you can discern. And then the third one is about a house, the storms. It's a warning about the, the destructive forces within ourselves, the, the danger of hearing the words of Jesus and going through the motions and showing up perhaps week after week, and, but leaving unaffected. So we've got three images, three warnings. We'll talk about in a little bit about warnings. But this, this gate image, and this is where we'll mostly spend our time, but I've never been, apparently, in the old walled city of Jerusalem, there are still several gates. And some of the gates are wide roadways, so that cars can get through, many people can get through, others are narrow, so you've got to wait your turn, and, and, and uh, it's quite uh, small to get in and out. So Jesus is contrasting two gates and two paths, one's narrow, one's wide. And I think what he has in mind here is a, a wide um, type of gate. And, and the idea is just kind of going with the flow, allowing the crowd to set the pace and the direction of, of where I'm going. Okay, so let's say after our gathering this morning, you have a bright idea that you want to build something. And you're going to go to Lee Valley. Who here, you know about Lee Valley? Yeah, I... Okay, a little more enthusiasm here. Lee Valley is amazing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Lee Valley, you, you, can, you can be around tools. You feel handy just by being around like these seniors who know how to build things. And they're gorgeous gardening tools and knives and shovels and all manner of things. Lee Valley is awesome. Who knows where Lee Valley is? <laughs> On Marine Drive. Right? So, I'm, pardon me? Nathan, we're not talking about this. Okay, so Lee, Lee Valley, 
I guess I can ask you questions, but I don't allow you to ask me questions. That's how fair is that? Um, no, it's not. Okay, let's move on. So Lee Valley is on Marine Drive. Okay, we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with the one in Coquitlam. And so you're done with the gathering. You're like, I want a shovel, and I don't want any ordinary shovel. This has to have aesthetic uh, quality to it. And so you get in your car, okay, and then you turn uh, left here, okay, and then you're going down Jackson, you're coming railway, this is how you drive, and you're going down Alexander, oh, and you realize, oh, they put a new bike path in there, I can't go that way, okay, I got to go down the alley, so I'm going down the alley. Okay, and you pop back out, and then you turn, you turn onto Maine. Now you're at Maine, okay? Can you stand up, sir, just a second? Just come here, okay? Just stand up. And so you're driving down Maine, and then you get to Terminal, and you go under that bridge. <laughs> okay, thank you. And then, can you stay with me? Yep. And then, so then, you, you drive. Oh, I'm Okay, driving. yeah, so then we're... So, let's just back up. So, we're going down Maine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and we swerve onto Kingsway. Okay, because it kind of goes to the left, right? Okay, and then we kind of got lost, so we loop back again. <laughs> and then we kind of, and then we get to, we're on Clark. And Clark, you've got three lanes there's trucks humming. It's packed. You can feel the flow, right? You just feel the movement. We're in Scott's sports car, and he's just, he, we're gunning it down, Clark. But we're coming up to Marine. Which way do we have to go? Right. We need a hard right. And that little exit sneaks up on us. Right, so, and we're in the left lane, so every bit of attention, shoulder checking, okay, <laughs> checking your mirror, right, we're trying to get across in time, oh, it's intense, oh, oh, and we make it, and we get onto Marine, thank you, Scott. And we have to put all that effort in all of our intention, all of our attention to getting out of that flow of Clark Y. Because wide is the path that leads to Richmond and Ladner. <laughs> and before you know it, you're just like, you're just, sorry, sorry, Kate. Um, you're like, well, I might as well just go to Ikea and eat bad hot dogs. And I guess I won't get a shovel. Maybe they'll have one. No, they won't. So wide is the path. It just, it, that's where everyone's going. Getting off is really hard. Jesus is really binary. He's shockingly binary about this. Life isn't that way. It's that way. There's a narrow gate, a narrow road, and it takes every bit of attention and intention to make the turn, to make the choice, to get off the wide path. And so, if you're at all serious about this Jesus stuff, if you're wanting to be one who puts your weight on, who apprentices, who actually rides the bike, there are going to be moments when you realize that you're caught in a very large flow. Large swaths of people are going in a direction. A multitude of people. And Jesus says it's heading towards a crash 
or a cliff or a cul-de-sac. Everyone's doing it and it's normal. But here's the thing, often, many times, normal is actually insane. I mean, to be headed towards a cul-de-sac, to be headed to anywhere that's not Lee Valley, if that's the aim, then it's not normal to go to Richmond. That's not where you want to go. I don't know if you've thought about this. I think we've, many of us have been thinking about this over the last hundred years. Next slide. Is, Is how did sensible, intelligent, progressive, artistic German people get duped so bad, right? Like, how could it be that one of our most progressive, intelligent cultures we've ever known, how did the German people get hoodwinked? How did they fall for fascism, for this this type of extremism? How did that level of racism, that level of violence and evil become normal? I often wonder what people will think when they look back at us, right? hundred years from now, when we look at our own cultural moment, what normal that we all assume, and just don't question, what kind of normal will people go? Like, how did those sensible, intelligent, very progressive Vancouverites absolutely get duped and hoodwinked by Netflix? Now, I've gone after Netflix a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to go again here. But it's just, how did that level of distraction and avoidance of real life and overindulgence become normal? There's a, there's a normal. Some normal is actually insane. There's kinds of normal that are very... E- because I see you flowing that way. Everyone I know is going down Clark... Why would I question that this isn't normal? I mean, it's totally normal to spend eight hours a day, like just, just cranking out seasons and avoiding my friends. That's normal. I, I have a quote that I keep uh, by my desk. So, and it's like it's like the perspective of someone hundred years from now looking back. So I remember to question normal. Alain de Botton says, the internet is to this generation of writers as alcohol was to previous ones. Anxiety suppressant, enemy of talent, challenge. I mean, many of you have have grown up in the age of the internet. It's normal. It's normal. There's a kind of normal that is actually insane. And everyone's doing it. It's normal. It's the wide path, but there's a cliff or a cul-de-sac or a crash at the end of that road, and nobody's talking about it. Just carrying along. Except that Jesus has been talking about it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. See, there's a wide path. There's a way of being in the world that's narcissistic and ego-driven. It is a kind of life that doesn't really create things, but just consumes them. And on this very wide path, it's normal to objectify and to use people. And Jesus calls this lust. But this path leads to destruction. The wide path leads to destruction. Why? Because people are never meant to be used or to be consumed. They're not for your consumption. This way leads to them being destroyed and you. But it's like... 
Jesus has been in the Sermon on the Mount, like, there's another path. It's really hard to see. It's almost grown over because so few people want to walk down this way. There's another path this way. It's really narrow. And the script, when you walk this path, isn't me, 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 me. The script that this path, you start with our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Start with wonder and worship of something outside of yourself. And you learn to honor God, and by learning to honor God, you learn to honor people, not use them. This narrow path, it's going to feel like you're the only one on it. But this path leads to life. There's a really wide path of vengeance and violence. Whether by tiny insults or massive military. This is the biggest industry we know. It's a really wide path that gets fiercely guarded by nationalism and patriotism. And this path is just, it's the normal course of things. It's normal. But it's actually insane. Because all along this path are strewn corpses and bodies, people wounded by words and bullets. But there's another path. There's this narrow path. It's really hard because it works by forgiveness. And on this path, you learn how not to be threatened by difference or the other or even an enemy. Because this path isn't about power, but it's about self-giving love. And this path involves making peace, not by recycling anger, but converting it into radical enemy love. It's really narrow. There's a wide path. It's, it's really close to Pacific Center and Robson Street. And it's about seeking security by shopping and accumulation. This path leads to destruction, not because any of those like clothes and food are bad. God knows we need them. But ultimately, that if you try to secure your belonging by securing your belongings, this is a dead-end game because it leads to crippling anxiety and worry because you're only as safe as your stuff is. This is the wide path of accumulation. But there's a narrow path that Jesus has been showing us through the Sermon on the Mount where you learn to trust God as a father. The best kind, the one who provides and cares and is aware of the details of your life. Who's sufficient, actually, for you. And by trusting your life to this God, you can become a non-anxious presence in the world. Lastly, there's a wide path a wide path of finding significant by judging people, elevating yourself by putting others down. This is the wide path of our online interactions and comment boards and social media comparison. But Jesus shows a narrow path that's not focused on comparison or control or manipulation or resorting to power. Rather, it's learning to entrust other people to God. Don't have to play God. So this whole time, as we've been wandering through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, like a, a guide, comes. We get to this point, and, and it's like he turns and says, I want to be really clear. There's two paths. So binary. So either or. There's paths that lead to where the life is, and there's paths that lead to taking it from you. And if you're going to 
be a person who wants to follow and practice the way of Jesus, there's a couple things you need to know. Some normal is actually insane. And some moments it may seem like you're the only one on that path. The only one in your family, the only one in your workplace, the only one amidst your housemates. And third, you can't be on two paths at the same time. It's just, you just can't, you can't do that kind of thing. It's a one path kind of thing. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview between Krista Tippett and Yo-Yo Ma. This is Yo-Yo Ma. And Yo-Yo Ma set out to learn to be a particular kind of cello player. That is, I guess, the best. And (laughs) by setting out to that path to become this level of cello player meant him saying no to a thousand other paths and other things. He couldn't pursue that interest and that interest and that interest and that opportunity and he had to say no to a whole bunch of things in order to become a cello player. So in a way, Yo-Yo Ma found the narrow cello gate. He found that narrow cello gate. Let's, we got to listen to some Yo-Yo if we're going to talk about him. So is it, do you have that, Kathy? Yeah.
Aren't you glad that Yo-Yo found the narrow path? Like, what beauty came out of that life and still comes out of his life because he got off of Clark. He got off of just, and he narrowed. He focused. He went through the narrow gate. I remember as a kid, I grew up playing violin. My sister's here, hi, Jane. And Jane and I had no choice but being in string quartets and going to lessons and festivals. And I think you started when you were three, right? Four. I started when I was four. And so we'd play, and then people would come up. And this happened all the time, and people would say, you're so lucky. I've always wanted to play the violin. And even as like a five, six, seven, eight-year-old thinking, you're a clueless adult. Like, <laughs> you're just seeing the performance, and you think this is what violin is? Violin sucks. <laughs> Violin's super, super hard. And even though I didn't think in these terms, it's close to something like, you're assuming that you could have your normal life as you have it now and add in a little bit of violin on top so that you can play in front of people. And it just doesn't work that way. In order to say yes to the violin as a little boy, I had to say no to baseball, like in the middle of the third inning in the back of my acreage, where I was going to for sure hit a home run, you know. I had to come in, I had to say no to certain sleepovers. I'd, notice it, I'd say no to Nintendo. So I learned as a kid to say yes to the violin, to enter that narrow gate and that narrow path meant saying no to so many other things. I share this quote often, but I want to share it again because I think for those of us who have ears, I want to have ears to hear this. I think this is Ron Rollheiser is going after something that I think is so of our moment. Most of us are quite like Mother Teresa in that we want to will God and the poor. We do will them. The problem is we will everything else as well. Thus, we want to be a saint, but we also want to feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and have a simple lifestyle, but we also want all the comforts of the rich, and we want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television and read, talk to friends and go out. Small wonder... Life is often a trying enterprise, and we are often tired and pathologically overextended. Every choice is a renunciation. Indeed, to choose one thing is to turn one's back on many others. To marry one person is not to marry all the others. To have a baby means giving up certain things, and to pray may mean missing television. No wonder we struggle so much with commitment. And this is where I think Jesus' words are really hard. I think they're hard, this idea of paths and, and that some normal is actually absurd and to, to go the narrow paths often means being lonely and that I can't, what, I can't be on multiple paths at the same time? You know, I was thinking about this, the FOMO, fear of missing out, but I think what we really struggle with is FOMEEP, which is fear of missing every exciting and exhilarating path. Okay, that's, I think that one's going to be as sticky. Um, that, that's the hard part, is I've, I struggle with FOMEEP. I, I want every path. I want it all. Years ago, I worked at a, a school, and we did, um, we did a lot of outdoor excursions with the students. We'd take them hiking, uh, do like winter camping, 
we started the year off with a, a big 10-day hiking and canoe trip. And the school uh, had been gifted this amazing, amazing canoe. Uh, it was, I think, a four- to six-man canoe. And it was canvas. It had been painted, and it was, it was just, just restored, and it was bright cherry red, and so we called it Clifford. Clifford the Big Red Canoe. It was a massive canoe. And so we'd start, start off, and I was, we were with the guys. It was the guys and the girls' trip. And so we were getting onto the river in southern Alberta. The river was high. It was, it was moving. And the students have a couple days of training beforehand. Uh, some of the leaders definitely had experience. I think I had, like, level one of river rescue. But uh, it was on this trip. And as often happens, there's horsing around. And you're splashing. And, but when you're in... When you're in Clifford, you almost feel like you're in the Titanic. Like, this thing can't tip. It's so huge. And we're going down the river, and there's a lot of horseplay, and we're trying to rein in the boys. And, and um, one of them ends up flipping Clifford. And it wasn't until we were actually in the river where we realized how strong the current was. And one of the biggest things in river rescue is just respect the river. Some respect for the reality of current. So I had no idea how fast the current was. And so we're trying to get our dry bags and, and things, and there's paddles. And, um, and I'm, I'm the, the leader in Clifford. And we're flying down the river. And I'm trying to collect all the boys and get over here. I'm starting to get panicked. And I see up ahead, the river goes into a Y. And right on the corner of this island is a whole bunch of uh, wood that's collected on this point and has just been rammed into the island by the force of the current. And so the guys are coming and they're, they're, they've clamped onto the, the canoe and, and I'm seeing us, we're getting now really close to the island. I'm saying, get, get off because we're going we're gonna to cram you. Uh, and so they get onto the other side of the canoe and we ride the canoe. It's going sideways down the river and hit dead center in the middle of Clifford, right on that point. And as we crash onto those logs, I see there's a fiberglass canoe that's been there before us and is wrapped around, like in a U, from the force of the water. Which is not a good sight when you're holding a canoe and you're seeing a decimated canoe. And I'm holding onto this, and the boys are, we're, we're panicked, and I can, I can feel the pressure of Clifford creaking this giant canoe and the tension of holding that and I had to make a decision on the right was this narrow little uh, channel with rapids and on on the other side I couldn't quite see all the way around it was wider and so I told the boys let go and go down the rapids keep your knees up to your chin and so they did. I let go of Clifford. Clifford went down the big way. I went down the small way. And it's just a pinball through the rapids. And it spit us out. Eventually collected all the material. Dried out. Had a campfire. Reprimanded the boys for not listening. First thing. Didn't respect the river. Because here's the real basic thing about current. The current always takes you somewhere. It just, it does. It takes you somewhere. You can think, this is normal. Fine. I'm, I'm actually not going to make any choices. It doesn't matter if you're not making any choices. The river is making choices for you. 
And there gets to be a point where you're on this, sometimes, where you're on this point of pressure and you're trying to hang on, trying to do both. Life and death are in your decisions, in your choices. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to bring home. It's like he's grabbing listeners by the lapels and pulling them so they can see, see them in the eyeballs and, and, and says this. If you, if you really want to find life, there's a narrow gate. There's a narrow path. And it's often going to be seemingly not normal and maybe even lonely. There's no avoiding it, though. There's no softening this hard line. Your choices, your actions matter. Now, if you remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins with this welcome, enormous welcome, and it's ending here with this enormous warning. It begins with Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, the morally bankrupt, the spiritually destitute. You're blessed. There's a wide amount of inclusion. And then it's narrowing down here, a warning saying, don't miss this. It's possible to know the songs and the prayers and still miss it. It's a a real firm warning, strong warning. He wants his listeners to see that life matters, that our choices matter, what I say no to and what I say yes to absolutely matters. Okay, one more story. All right. I don't know what I'd say if you do if you say no, but... um, Yes, okay. Years ago, 2014, our friends, um, Kenton and Andrea, were going to get married. And they did, September. This was exciting for our family because my kids, for years, had prayed for Kenton. They've been praying for Kenton. This was a good man, and they wanted Kenton to find a nice partner. And so we prayed for Kenton, and now was the day. We were overjoyed when we found out that Ken and Andrea were engaged and now we were going to get to come and witness their sharing of vows. They were going to say yes to one another. We were so excited for that moment. And I was thinking about that moment in the wedding ceremony when they were going to say yes. And so I wrote this poem for them. Um, this is called The Country of Marriage, which is a, I'm stealing from Wendell Berry. In the early days together, you think you know what you're saying yes to. You have, after all, spent many, many hours surveying the land, learning the geography of personality and family history, developing a new cartography to chart out this possibility, and let's be honest, you've studied the topography. Oh, baby. (laughs) Lord, have mercy on me. You have traversed tributaries and trials You've surveyed and found that now you're ready to discover what you are more or less certain of is already there. You're ready for the country of marriage. Today you're saying yes to no longer traveling alone. Yes to sharing agendas, new roots and new views of alpine flowers, volcanoes, new species of fruit. Yes to finding out that you really had no clue that there is so much more to him and to you. Yes, to one foot in front of the other when caught in the switchbacks and you think, why even bother? Yes, in all seasons and in all weather, when the green leaves leave, when the rivers of reciprocity freeze, when your best lies dormant and it's hard to believe that a springtime will come and change will emerge in its proper time.
Today you are giving a yes that will grow and be sustained by the next yes and then the next. Your yes is a yes to finding a million ways to say yes. Yes to you now and yes to you here. And all of your yeses, the early ones, the faint ones, will be held by the maker's strong, deep yes to you. His inexhaustible gladness for the journey. And as for the rest of us, we will be ready to hear fresh tales of vistas found and canyons scaled, sometimes even sharing the trail to follow along and the whole way adding our own yes, yes, yes. This is the art of learning to say yes and being careful where we give our yeses. So as Kenton was saying yes to Andrea, he was also saying no to the rest of us is the beauty of this all-inclusive relationship. For Andrea to have all of Kenton meant he had to also be exclusive. There's, there's no two paths. It, you have to learn the art of saying yes and no. So as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, are there things that, if you're honest, that you're involved in right now if you're honest, you'd say it's not where the life is. Are there things you've been defending as normal? But it's actually insane. It's insane to defend that kind of normal. Are there ways that you've been drifting? Either in a relationship or in patterns for years. It's been your normal. It's been your family normal. Maybe even for generations. The wild thing about God is that God is such a God of beginnings and new starts. And they're possible. There's so much possibility in a moment. So today actually could be a moment of new possibility. That with repentance comes new life. So this morning could be a moment of decision. It could be an opportunity for you to give your next yes to God. And we do that as we come to the table, remembering that any of our little yeses are only possible because of his deep yes to us in Christ. So our little yeses are in response to him. We love because he first loved us. We're just learning how to say yes to him. And so I don't know what that means for you, and I'm not presuming to know what your next yes may be. Or maybe it feels really strongly like... If I'm going to say yes to that, I need to say no to this. I don't know what that may be for you. I've got something in my mind for myself this morning that I, as I come to the table, I'm ready to say a new yes. And I want to invite you to do the same. To receive the bread. This is one that you can entrust your brokenness to because he actually has uh, shown us the way to be human. And that is to be broken and vulnerable. And in that, God can transform and resurrect new life. And so this is our pattern of coming and receiving. And so this table is open to all who need it. Uh, if you want this morning, maybe for the first time, to give a yes to God, uh, come to the table um, and uh, give a fresh yes this morning. Let's remind ourselves here with the, the, uh, the liturgy as we come to the table of why we're doing what we're doing. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great...